just to make certain, if you weren't here last week or you didn't get an email, um, we have uh, gone into escrow now on our new facility on White Lane. And so if you look around, can't be too soon. So we're thankful for that. And so we'll be uh, working on that in the coming weeks. And when we get keys, then we will begin some remodeling and hope to be in there uh, late spring, early summer of 2022. In the meantime, we gather here to uh, hear the word of God. And so I want to have you turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And during this Christmas season, we're going to do kind of some classic Christmas passages. Kind of try to do different things every year. We're going to go back to some classics, but kind of with a twist. But let's just read Luke 2, 1 through 7, which is our very, very classic passage from Luke. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The birth of Christ can't just be somehow disconnected from the entire redemptive plan of God. The birth of Christ, first of all, was preceded for thousands of years by biblical prophecies of his coming. The first, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, with hundreds of more prophecies of the coming Messiah all through the Old Testament. The birth of Christ itself then was followed by the growing up of the Lord Jesus as fully man, yet fully God. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And at the right time, when Jesus was about 30 years old, his ministry was inaugurated at his own baptism, a baptism of humility in that he was identifying with the very sinners who were in need of cleansing of sin. For about three and a half years, he ministered, preaching and teaching, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming himself as the son of God who would save the repentant from their sins. And he proved his identity by performing verifiable miracles, too many to count. And then, according to the perfect plan of God, and with Jesus himself predicting that this would happen, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He would be arrested, he would be tried, he would be crucified. And in his work on the cross, he took the wrath of God for sin upon himself instead of having it fall on you. And he died the death of a sinner when he himself was innocent while you will receive eternal life as if you were righteous when in fact you were guilty of violating the holiness of God. And then proving that the death of Christ was full and absolute sufficient payment for sin The Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, the first human being to be resurrected in a glorified body, never to die again. Jesus then ascended into heaven to begin his ministry of mediation, of pronouncing to the Father the innocence of all who had placed their faith in Christ. And so the birth of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas is it's vitally connected to the ancient prophecies which came long before Bethlehem. It's vitally connected to the ministry of Christ, to the death of Christ, to the resurrection of Christ, to the current intercessory ministry of Christ. And so the birth of Christ is linked meaningfully to the far past and to the present. But the birth of Christ is also linked to the future to the second advent, and to the coming kingdom of Christ. And for this Christmas season, I'd like to make that particular connection our focus. And I'd like to do a short series I'm calling Christmas Past and Future. And listen, it's not just that, well, obviously, Jesus had to be born so that he could live, die, be resurrected, ascend into heaven, and then return someday. It's not that 
It's not that obvious. The connections are much more meaningful than that. They're, they're much more interconnected. There's much more meaning. The very circumstances surrounding his birth drive us to examine the circumstances surrounding his second coming because the similarities are staggering. And so in the coming weeks, we'll examine in Christmas past and present, we'll look at Jesus and his angelic messengers. We'll look at Jesus and his family reunion. We'll look at Jesus and his great escape. We'll look at Jesus and his coming fame. We'll do that on Christmas Eve. But for today, to kind of introduce this little series, I'd like to look at Jesus and his different arrivals. Jesus and his different arrivals. And very simply, I want to just show you five circumstances around his first arrival. Five circumstances around his first arrival, surrounding this arrival. And so we're just going to give some of these facts. The first circumstance, Jesus arrived by a teenage girl. He arrived by a teenage girl. Verse 5 tells us that, of course, the mother of Jesus impregnated when the Holy Spirit came upon her is the young lady, Mary. If she was of normal marriageable age, then this means she was a young teenager. She was trained by her mother already to be ready for marriage, to be ready for motherhood itself. She's betrothed to Joseph, but not yet married. Verse 4 notes that they were coming to Bethlehem because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. This is important because Messiah was to be a descendant of King David. 2 Samuel 7 says this. Isaiah 11 says this. So that prophecy had to be fulfilled. Now there's two genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels. One in Matthew and one in Luke chapter 3. The one in Matthew lists that is Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And that lineage goes all the way back to David's son, Solomon, listing a man named Jacob as Joseph's father. But in Luke, the genealogy there lists Joseph's father as Heli, not Jacob. And then it goes all the way back to David's son, Nathan, not Solomon. Now, some feel that this is actually a genealogy of Mary, but it's presented through Joseph since genealogies of women were not commonplace. Others feel that Matthew's genealogy, the one that says Jacob, the the father of Joseph, traces Joseph's lineage through his mother's side and his maternal grandfather was Jacob. And and that that would be reasonable because we already know that Matthew skips generations in his genealogy as many biblical genealogies do. And that perhaps Luke then is tracing Joseph through his father's side. However you slice it, though, it doesn't make any difference. Because Joseph, as the legal father of Jesus, not his biological father, Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, as Jesus' legal father, gave Jesus the legal right to the throne of David. And so there's no direct, clear evidence that Mary was descended from David. But it doesn't matter. Legal rights weren't passed on through the mother anyway. And by the way, your official lineage was established through the father, even if the child was adopted. Adoption made no difference. But God goes to a lot of trouble to give us these two genealogies to be very, very clear about one point. Jesus is what the people called him, the son of David. From two different angles. If Jesus is truly Messiah, truly the Son of God, he must come from the family of David. This is clearly shown in Scripture. And so again, you get this lineage through two different sons of David, no matter which way you cut it. Now, I personally tend toward the view that Mary also is a descendant of David because God never does anything halfway. But that's not the main point of Mary. The main point of Mary is that Jesus didn't descend from heaven on a chariot of fire. Jesus didn't magically wander down from a mysterious mountain. Jesus didn't just pop into existence somewhere as a full-grown man. The point of Mary is that the child in her, Luke one thirty-five says, was conceived when the Holy Spirit came upon her. And that the Son of Man, the Son of God, came into the world fully human, son of man, fully God, son of God. And he came by means of a humble human mother of simple means. 
In fact, Genesis 3.15, the very first prophecy of Jesus Christ, said that the woman, Eve, would have offspring. And one of these offspring would crush the head of Satan and undo the curse of sin. So Jesus not only had to be a descendant of David, he had to be a descendant of Adam. In Adam, who sinned, all die. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says this, He was unable to withstand the pressure of sin from Satan. But Jesus called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. He's the one who did withstand the pressure of Satan's temptations. He did live a perfect life. He did pay for our sins on the cross. And he dealt a death blow to the evil one. And in Mary, the Son of God arrived in the world in the most humble means possible in other humility. And this is very, very consistent with what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2.7 that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of, of men. When it says here that Jesus emptied himself, it's, it's the Greek word ekonosin, and the, the, the root word is kanao, and it means to make empty, to deprive of one's possessions. And we get this word, the kenosis, that theologians use to speak of the emptying. It doesn't mean that Jesus gave up being God. He didn't diminish his deity but he concealed his glory. And by the way, Jesus loved his mother. He was a perfectly righteous youngster. He was a perfect son, and as such, he honored and cherished his mother as a good son should. And even though Jesus was here to do cosmic, universe-level, eternal work on behalf of his heavenly Father, Jesus had a young human mother whom he cared for. And you recall that even when he was dying on the cross, Jesus made certain that his mom was cared for by the Apostle John. Jesus arrived by a teenage girl. The second circumstance surrounding his first arrival, Jesus arrived by an earthly decree. He arrived by an earthly decree. Augustus Caesar was his title, but his real name was Octavian. And he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar and Octavian, or Augustus Caesar, ruled for a time in a triumvirate, a, a, a three-part ruling structure, alongside Mark Antony and Lepidus. Lepidus fell from power, and Octavian then defeated Mark Antony. The Roman Senate acknowledged Octavian in 27 BC and gave him the title Augustus. really brought a, a fairly peaceful rule to the Roman Empire. And during his reign, Augustus decreed three censuses. And these took years to carry out, and they were ordered by each individual province of the Roman Empire. In fact, Luke notes the timing in verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, there's two historical facts, almost certainly proven. The first one is, is that Jesus was born on or before 4 B.C. Not zero, and not one. There is no zero. Our calendar is not inspired. They missed it by four years, and that's okay. Quirinius ordered, issued the order for the census in his region. This is the second fact. Ten years later, in 6 AD. And in fact, this caused a fully documented revolt. Luke himself documents this revolt in Acts 5.37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the day of the census. Now, this has for many years been a, a giant aha to those who had questioned the historicity of the Bible and Luke in particular. But you would think that after 200 years of archaeology lining up with Scripture, time after time after time after time, that people would learn. We know that this is not speaking of the census of 6 AD here in verse 2. No revolt is mentioned by Luke in this case. And you say, well, then we have the wrong governor. Anybody been in California long enough to find, remember how many times Jerry Brown has been governor? It's been like 400 times. Quirinius was the Jerry Brown of the ancient world. He was governor multiple times. And so to say when Quirinius was governor, if you didn't live in that time, you'd say which time? Also, there are at least a dozen plausible solutions to this seeming little problem. The two most easy things to say, though, is that first of all, 
Quirinius could easily have been the governor during that time. And this is the first of three censuses that Augustus Caesar did. And the second solution is simply to say Luke was alive when it happened. You weren't. And so this is accurate. He was an eyewitness. But how is this census administered? And this is very interesting. Verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. This was not the normal way that the Roman Empire did a census. This was inefficient. This was difficult. Everybody's having to travel. Everybody's giving up working to go different places. There's people on the road everywhere. Hey, I thought you lived that way. I know, but I was born over here. This was inefficient. But Rome's strategy and world domination was not just crush the enemy, but it was to allow for the customs and the practices of the lands they occupied. And they knew to some degree the law of God. And in the law of God, when a big deal is happening, what did people do? They traveled to be together. And so Augustus said, well, let's do that then. And so he decreed that everyone would travel to their family's hometown. This was a a major custom for Israel, and so Rome did it this way. Now, why does Luke give us all this detail? In fact, it's so detailed that history hasn't been able to keep up with the specifics. Very simply, because God sovereignly moved all of history to this point for his own reasons. Isaiah 46.10 reminds us that God declares the end from the beginning. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If you had to suffer through history in school, the reason you suffered through it is because it didn't seem to have a point. Can I tell you the point of all of history? It'll be worth the price of admission today. The point of all of history is to serve as background for God's plan in scripture. That's all it is. And so if all of your history classes had included, let me show you how this fits in with Israel, God's chosen nation and the birth of Christ, you would have said, oh, now history is interesting. In fact, 30 years before the birth of Jesus, things were heating up and there was a political crisis. Part of the triumvirate of Rome, Mark Antony, he had an affair with Cleopatra of Rome. You say, Mark Antony and Cleopatra is part of the Bible? Just listen, Octavian Consider that an act of treason. It led to a civil war in which Octavian defeated Mark Antony in a massive naval battle at Actium and a land battle in Alexandria. This led to the Roman census recognizing Octavian as Caesar Augustus, ruler of greatness. And as the ruler of greatness, Caesar wanted to know what he was ruling. So in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Jesus first arrived by a teenage girl. Second, he arrived by an earthly decree. The third circumstance around his first arrival, Jesus arrived with no one knowing him. He arrived with no one knowing him. Verse 7 says that after Jesus was born, they laid him in the manger, quote, because there was no place for them in the inn. How many church Christmas programs have had the evil innkeeper? You've heard the stories of the evil innkeeper the hotel manager who turned away poor Joseph and Mary from the Bethlehem Hotel. There wasn't a Bethlehem Hotel. The word inn is a little bit misleading. We think of a hotel. This is a Greek word that means the guest room in somebody's house. Most of the homes would have small guest rooms or upper rooms, and it was customary and normal to take in travelers precisely because there weren't any hotels. And that was the culture, because in Israel, everyone was your brother or your sister. And if you got a knock on the door, you were confronted with a stranger that at some level was related to you. And you never said no to family. But because of the census, all the guest rooms, the katalumas, were taken There weren't the formal hotels, but many houses also had a a small place to put animals because animals came with every traveler. And so it wasn't exactly a stable, but some sort of warm shelter where animals were welcome. Remember, in, in this culture, animals and people lived in very close proximity. Keeping your goat in the living room wasn't considered a big deal. There's some strong traditions that place Joseph and Mary in a cave outside of Bethlehem. There are many caves in the area used as some sort of stable. But more importantly, this would really characterize all of the life of Christ. God the Son emptying himself 
to walk among men. He spent his life in humility. He was the the son of a blue-collar tradesman. He spent his ministry staying in other people's homes. He didn't own any property. He hung around with criminals and prostitutes and tax collectors. He lived a life that was low and that was small. There's no record of Jesus ever traveling more than a few days' journey from the place of his birth. And in fact, he would die five and a half miles from the very spot he was born. And when he was born, there was no room for him among men. In fact, at the end of his ministry, Israel decided there was no room for him on earth. And so they killed him. Wherever Joseph and Mary stayed, it was clearly not in one of the nice guest rooms in a home. It was in and around Bethlehem. The guest rooms were all full. And no one knew who this coming baby was. Let me ask you a question. If you had a guest room and some strangers came and knocked on the door and by tradition you're supposed to let them in and, and let them uh, stay for the night and they're just settling in. They've, they, you've given them their, their, their comforter and some sheets and some towels and they just got their pajamas on and they're having their nightly cup of tea and getting ready to say goodnight and there's another knock at the door and the Lord Jesus Christ is standing there and says, do you have any place that I can sleep? You would say, excuse me just for a moment, turn to these other people, you're out of here, pack up your stuff and go. I have the garage, you can use the backyard, you can use the driveway, you can sleep in my car, I don't care, you have five seconds, get out. Why? Because you know the Son of God and you would never turn him away. Shortly after he was born, God would reveal the arrival of Jesus to a few shepherds and later to some wise men. But at the moment Jesus was born, only two people knew who he was, Joseph and Mary. That's it. Jesus arrived by a teenage girl, by an earthly decree with no one knowing him. There's a fourth circumstance around his first arrival. Jesus arrived in an animal's feeding box. He arrived in an animal's feeding box. Verse 7 tells us that when Jesus was born in whatever room they were in, whether a cave outside of Jerusalem or in a downstairs animal area in a home, not the good guest room, they laid Jesus in a manger. It was a feeding trough with some fresh hay put into it. The manger must be important because Luke mentions it three times here in verse 7, then you have a mention in verse 12 and then verse 16. And I'll tell you in a moment why one reason at least why that's so important. Now, just a little side note, despite all of the pictures and the models we have of mangers of feeding troughs made of wood, they weren't made of wood. Uh, wood was scarce You in that area. You saved wood for important construction projects. The manger was most likely made of the most common building material in the area, and that's stone. And they would last for generations. The, the manger was really just a large stone with a canoe-like cavity cut out of it. You kind of moved it once and left it there for about 800 years there's no one there but mary and her husband yes we assume the animals but the fact that no animal was eating out of the manger means that there probably weren't any there except whatever animals they brought with them sorry to ruin all of your manger scenes but you can still keep them that's okay and she gave birth to her firstborn son we would note that mary would have other children mark 6 3 four brothers and at least two sisters Primarily, though, this designation of Jesus as the firstborn speaks of him being the the preeminent one, the one with all the rights of the firstborn, his right to ascend the throne of David. I've asked myself, and I think it's a worthy question, what was it like the moment that the second member of the triune God laid aside his divine heavenly robes and stepped off the royal holy throne of the universe when the creator himself stepped out of heaven and became first a single cell. And nine months later, to be in the arms of a teenage girl and her husband in a quiet, lonely place, to cry for his mother's milk, to need to take lots of naps, and the very Son of God stepped out of the glory of heaven, out of the splendor of the very throne room of the universe into a place with no fancy nursery, 
No beautiful crib, no toys, no stuffed animals, no baby shower with grandmas and grandpas and friends and neighbors pouring out gifts. Just a rock with a hollow cut in it. When you wonder if God can relate to you, He not only related to you, He became you. He became you. God came as a baby in the most humble of circumstances, such that Hebrews 4.15 says that the Son of God, quote, can sympathize with our weaknesses and such that He would eventually exchange His perfect life for your sinful one and die a sinner's death that you deserved. I'll bet that every one of you was born in more glorious circumstances than Jesus was. He arrived in an animal's feeding box. Jesus arrived by a teenage girl. He arrived by an earthly decree. He arrived with no one knowing him. He arrived in an animal's feeding box in a fifth circumstance around his first arrival. Jesus arrived in scraps of cloth. He arrived in scraps of cloth. In verse 7, she wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloths. It's not clothes. That's too fancy. They weren't garments. They were scraps. How did you do this? Well, you took your biggest scrap of cloth, a a square if you could get one, and you laid a baby right in the middle diagonally, and it's just kind of burrito style. You just had the bottom corner go up, and the top two corner, the side corners go over, and you kind of hung on to that for a minute, and then you got some bandages. You got some other scraps that were thinner, and you began from the bottom, and you just started wrapping And then you get to the head and kind of wrap that last little part of the square up until you have this cute little package with just the baby's face showing. And babies love that. It was very common in the ancient Near East. It kept the baby content and confined like in the womb. But Jesus being wrapped in swaddling cloths, it's not just a functional thing. Joseph figures into this scene as well in a very important fashion. You remember the encounter that Joseph had with an angel in Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18, that when Mary was found to be with child, Joseph resolved to be merciful to her and to divorce her quietly since he assumed that her pregnancy was due to adultery, which carried the death penalty. But an angel appeared to Joseph And said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, why is Joseph and and the swaddling cloths, why are these important? Why do they go together? Because it legally indicated when he helped Mary wrap this precious little one in these swaddling cloths, it indicated that legally I accept you as legitimate. In the ancient Near East, a newborn not accepted as legitimate, maybe as a result of adultery or an unwanted baby for any reason, was treated horribly and and murdered by exposure. The umbilical cord wouldn't be cut, the baby wouldn't be washed, and the baby would definitely not be wrapped in swaddling cloths. And the baby would be tossed out into a field and left. little side note, Ezekiel 16, God pictures Israel as the illegitimate baby thrown into a field. And God saved her out of nothingness by coming upon this baby, cast into the field and rescuing her. So when Joseph helps Mary wrap this precious child in swaddling cloths, he is saying, this is the legitimate son of God. When the angel later in Luke 2 tells the shepherds to look for a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, the angel is saying, look for the legitimate son of God. But even with this sign of legitimacy, it was still an incredibly humble way to come into the world. Most babies start this life with more clothes than they can wear before they outgrow them. Jesus started with Joseph and Mary rummaging through their things looking for some scraps of cloth not a very auspicious and promising first arrival was it jesus arrived by a teenage girl by an earthly decree with no one knowing him in an animal's feeding box wrapped in scraps of cloth from a human perspective jesus was born to a nobody he would live as a nobody and he would die as a nobody with his life having been barely a whisper in the wind But the circumstances of his first arrival 
are paralleled by contrasting circumstances of his second arrival, the yet-to-be coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. At his first arrival, he arrived by a teenage girl. Shortly prior to his second arrival, we get the fuller picture. Jesus arrived by a holy nation. He arrived by a holy nation. In Revelation 12, during the time of the Great Tribulation, we see not a young teenage girl in a place so anonymous, no one knows exactly where she was when she gave birth. Instead, Revelation 12 says, A great sign appeared in heaven. And what is this sign? Revelation 12, one, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Now, this description of this woman with the, with the clothing of the sun, the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars, what's happening in your mind right now? You're racing back to Joseph, aren't you? Joseph the dreamer. Genesis 37, 9, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Add Joseph plus his 11 brothers, and you have the 12 stars. In fact, Jacob, his father himself, in somewhat sarcastic tone, accurately interpreted the dream. Are you saying that your mother and I and your brothers will all bow down and worship you? This is the infancy of the nation of Israel when it was made up only of Jacob and his family. This was the promise given to Abraham by God that God would make him into a chosen nation and that through this nation, a singular seed, one man, would possess the gates of his enemies. Genesis twenty-two seventeen. And Revelation 12 pictures this cosmic battle. Verse 4 of Revelation 12 pictures Satan the dragon standing before the woman who is about to give birth. Quote, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That's been his goal all along. Satan has been menacing and threatening and coming against Israel since her inception. When Israel was just a large family. The actions of Levi and Simeon at Shechem caused the whole region to hate Israel. When Israel was in Egypt, safe from the famine, they were eventually enslaved by Pharaoh. Israel had to fight her way into the land of Canaan, which was by all rights hers. And all through her history, with one brief break during the reign of Solomon, Israel has been threatened by her neighboring nations. And then due to her own sin, she was led astray by the tempter Satan, God punished Israel by disassembling her as a nation and yet he saved a remnant who returned to Israel and even then they had terrible turmoil and wars in the time between the Testaments, the intertestamental period, finally culminated in being occupied and controlled by the might of Rome. And in the midst of this seemingly untenable situation, though under Roman occupation, Israel was preserved and she gave birth to a son. And how Satan hated that son. As Revelation 12.5 says, He is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The world that is currently under Satan's dominion will become Christ's. And so Satan tried to kill him by King Herod's decree of killing all the male babies and toddlers in and around Bethlehem. Satan came against Jesus with unprecedented concentrations of demonic activity with even one man carrying thousands of demons. Satan tried to derail Jesus from his mission of going to the cross by tempting him to stay alive instead and serve Satan as the second command over all the earth. But after perfectly fulfilling his father's mission to die for the sins of all who would place their faith in Christ, to be raised from the dead in victory over death, Revelation 12.5 says of Israel's child, For her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman, the holy nation, had successfully brought forth Messiah. By the way, just like Jesus cherished and made certain that his mother Mary was taken care of, in like manner when he returns, he will take care of his greater mother, Israel. Since the time of Christ, God's people of Israel have endured horrific pain and suffering, and yet they endure and they endure and they endure as a people. 
And ultimately at the halfway point of the great tribulation when Antichrist breaks his Daniel 9 covenant with Israel and begins persecuting her likely, especially those who now follow Christ as Savior, Revelation 12, 6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. But there were more Jews yet to be saved during this time. So the ones who stayed behind who had not yet come to faith in Christ when their eyes are opened, according to Revelation 11, when the people of Jerusalem give glory to God by worshiping Christ, then Antichrist will escalate his persecution. And Zechariah 14 says that the nations will gather against Jerusalem. The city will be taken. The women ravaged. All hope for Israel will now seem to be lost. But then... Zechariah 14, 3 through 5 records that the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. This text records that the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ will stand on the Mount of Olives. He'll split it in half. And in the great valley that's formed, his people will escape even as Jesus decimates his enemies. We saw that secondly, Jesus arrived by an earthly decree. But right before his second arrival, we get the fuller picture. Jesus will arrive by a heavenly decree. He'll arrive by a heavenly decree. In Mark 13, beginning in verse 24, Jesus speaks of his second coming after the great tribulation. And he says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, why was Jesus saying this? Well, he was saying this in a private meeting with his 12 disciples and they had asked him, tell us, when will these things be? Jesus gave a long answer with signs and signals that his coming was imminent. But then he tells them something Surprising, maybe even stunning. Mark thirteen thirty two. but concerning that day, the day of his return, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Yes, Jesus is the all-knowing God, fully God, And yet in some mysterious way in his humanity, God the Father has reserved the knowledge of the timing of the the return of Christ. Such that just like us, Jesus himself awaits the decree that the time has come. And so I want you to picture this now. We're transported now to the heavenly throne room in the temple of heaven near the very end of the great tribulation. And in the throne room is a mighty angel in audience with God the Father, and this mighty angel is receiving orders behind closed doors. And awaiting those orders is what Revelation 14, 14 says, is one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle of judgment in his hand, and he's seated on a white cloud. This can only be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he awaits word from his Father. Revelation 14, 15 says that the angel in conference with God the Father, quote, came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, quote, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. And you could fast forward to Revelation 19 when we see Jesus Christ astride and atop his white horse. Jesus returns to earth by the decree of heaven. We saw third that Jesus arrived with no one knowing him. At the second coming, Jesus will arrive with everyone knowing him. The whole world knowing him, not in a salvific sense, but knowing who he is and what he's doing. Matthew 24, 23 and following, Jesus warned his future followers, particularly Jews in Israel, that in a future day, many will claim to be Messiah. And they shouldn't believe false messiahs. And so the obvious question is, well, how will we know that Messiah is returning? How will we know the real Messiah? Well, Jesus makes it clear as lightning. He says in Matthew 24, 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
We spent a lot of years in central Texas, and during certain months of the summer, a bolt of lightning across the sky can last five, six, seven seconds. It's spectacular. Imagine that last scene I could make the case from the end of the book of Daniel for 30 days. This bolt of lightning across the sky. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. So when Jesus arrives and splits the Mount of Olives in two and kills His enemies with the word of His mouth, nobody will say, Do you think that's Jesus? That's a far cry from no room in the inn, isn't it? Fourth, we saw that Jesus arrived in an animal's feeding box. But at his second coming, Jesus will arrive on a king's stallion. He'll arrive on a king's stallion. Revelation 19.11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The Bible makes use of imagery and color to add depth and understanding to the truths being proclaimed and explained. And the color white has several layers of significance throughout Scripture. First of all, white is associated with royalty and festiveness. The song of Deborah in Judges 5.10 describes princes who sit on rich carpets and, quote, ride on white donkeys or white horses of some sort. In Esther 1.6, King Ahasuerus hosts a great outdoor feast for all of his royal officials to show off his splendor. And the outdoor feast is known to be royal and festive because it's decorated with white cotton everywhere. White cotton curtains and cloth. So white is associated with royalty and festiveness. It's also associated with purity and holiness. A half dozen or more places in the New Testament show the angels and the glorified church in heaven wearing white robes. In Revelation 3, 4, Jesus said that the true believers in the church of Sardis, quote, will walk with me in white for they are worthy, meaning they've been made righteous, pure, holy by the blood of Christ. Revelation 20 pictures the place of Christ's pure and holy judgment upon all unbelievers of all the ages as the great white throne. But white gets elevated even more. It takes on an even more intense idea. White is associated with the supernatural transcendence of the king of all the kings, Jesus Christ the Lord. He encompasses, he defines the highest ideals of what we've already said, of royalty and festiveness and purity and holiness. When Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, Matthew 17, 2 says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Mark 9, 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. We've already seen Jesus described in Revelation 14, 14 as on a white cloud before rendering judgment on the earth at the second coming. But white is also associated with victory and triumph. Revelation 7.14 pictures the tribulation martyrs who were, who were triumphant in their stand for Christ and going all the way to death in faithfulness as those, quote, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have victory over sin. And when you're washed in the atoning blood of Christ, your sins become white as snow. Isaiah 1.18 says this. And all the rich imagery, all the depths of white is encompassed in Christ. Royalty, festiveness, purity, holiness, supernatural transcendence, and in this context, victory and triumph. In Luke's day, what's the big deal about a white horse? When a Roman general conquered cities, he came in a chariot drawn by white horses. And Jesus is pictured as seated on a white horse. And by the way, the blood of his enemies is splattered all over his robe before the battle. And he's wearing the crowns of the kingdoms of the world before the battle. Isaiah eleven four says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. And so he slays the wicked. And all of a sudden, though, in Isaiah 11, the picture shifts. The rest of Isaiah 11 gives us a picture of peace and joy and delight that will be the kingdom of Christ on earth. Here's a little irony for you. 
to bring a smile to the consistency of Scripture. The one who first came in an animal's feeding trough, according to Isaiah eleven seven, will so change the earth and even nature itself that, quote, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And so, who knows, maybe the very feeding trough that Jesus was placed in, some big old lion will be there saying, I'd like lunch now. One more, Jesus arrived in scraps of cloth. But at his second coming, Jesus will arrive in glorious splendor. He'll arrive in glorious splendor. He's already arrayed in the splendor of his glory, even now at this moment. When John received the revelation of Jesus Christ, he records the one speaking to him with a voice like a trumpet. In Revelation 1.12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a vision of Jesus Christ in all of his glory, but it's an unusual vision because John says over and over again the comparative term like. It's sort of like. It's like. It's like. Because he's describing in human terms a Savior who is indescribable in his glory. He's standing among seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 of Revelation 1 tells us these are the seven churches that we'll see in Revelation 2 and 3. He's in the midst of them. Jesus is the head of the church. He knows intimately every local church, including this one, by the way. He's called the Son of Man. This is a term used by Jesus himself to refer to himself more than any other term. And in the context of the book of Revelation, he is the Son of Man judging his churches and later judging the earth. Son of Man speaks of his capacity as judge. In John 5, 27, the Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He has a long robe and a golden sash. Now some feel this is speaking of righteousness and dignity. That's just assigning the meaning randomly though. It gives us much more likely a picture of a priestly garment combined with a kingly garment. That Jesus is both a king who will rule and the priest who mediates for his people by means of his own blood. He's pictured with white hair, his eternity, his wisdom. This also conveys his deity, by the way, since this is a clear reference to Daniel 7, 9, the description of the Ancient of Days, the Heavenly Father. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. In other words, Jesus looks like, as it were, his Father. He has eyes as a flame of fire, his scrutiny, his omniscience, the x-ray vision that only God can have. In chapter 2 of Revelation to the church at Thyatira, Jesus said, I am he who searches mind and heart. He has feet like bronze. There's some sort of reflection of God's divine glory. And it may be a reference to the fact that Psalm 110 says that Messiah will trample down his enemies underfoot. He has a voice like the roar of many waters and like a trumpet. There's grandeur, there's power. He's unstoppable. His right hand has seven stars. Verse 20 tells us these are the leaders of the churches. His mouth has a two-edged sword. This is a, a symbolic way of stating he'll execute justice with a very word. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. This is the second time, by the way, that John has seen Jesus like this since he was at the transfiguration with Peter and James. Put all this together. And Jesus is pictured as clothed in power and majesty and awe and terror with that long royal priestly robe, the golden royal sash, his hair bright white like the sun shining on snow, his eyes flashing fire that penetrates every heart, every thought, glowing feet that will trample down his enemies, a loud booming voice like waves crashing on the shores of Patmos, where John was, and words like a sword to destroy his enemies. 
and his face like the sun at its brightest. When you were a kid, did you ever play who can look at the sun longest? You don't do that with the Son of God. His face is too intense for human eyes. Boy, that's a long way from a baby being wrapped in some scraps of cloth, isn't it? Jesus arrived by a holy nation. He will arrive by a heavenly decree. He will arrive with the whole world knowing him. He will arrive on a king's stallion. And he will arrive in glorious splendor. That'd make a very different nativity scene, wouldn't it? And so the first arrival of Jesus gives us a comparison and a contrast with his second arrival. And I would say this. You can't claim to know the one who arrived by a teenage girl at an earthly decree coming with no one knowing them, sleeping in a feeding trough and wearing scraps of cloth. You cannot say, I like Christmas because that tells me who Jesus is. You cannot claim to know him unless you know the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and was raised from the dead to prove his victory over death. And even now, at this very moment, is interceding at the right hand of God on behalf of all who will place their faith in him. And at the decree and command of his Father will arrive once again in glory. 2 Timothy 4.8 has a nickname for Christians, for true Christians. You know what your nickname is? All who love his appearing. All who love his appearing. Only the true believer in Christ loves the appearing of Christ because Second John tells us, First John 2 rather, tells us that those who see the coming of Christ and they don't know him will shrink away in shame. May we not be those. Let's be those who have loved his appearing. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this brief time we've had. How we love Christmas time. How we love to remember that the King of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, the one whose the train of his robe extends throughout the heavenly throne room, whose face is as bright as the sun, who has been in the glory of his Father for all time. At a point in history, stepped out of heaven and became a cell. Became a baby. So that he could ultimately step into our shoes. When your wrath was racing toward humanity. To rightfully punish us for all eternity for our sins. Your glorious, righteous, courageous son stepped into the path. And we thank you that he has absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of all who would place their faith in him. And so while we love and adore the Christmas story, we look also to the cross and to the resurrection, to his ascension, to his current ministry of intercession. And ultimately, we look ahead and we would pray with the Apostle John, come soon, Lord Jesus. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.